Well, let me open us up this morning in a, uh, in a brief word of prayer while we're getting started. Oh God, we thank you this morning for, uh, for your word. Lord, we thank especially this morning of uh, your teaching us regarding the sacraments. Oh God, we, uh, we know this is a difficult um, issue and one that's very controversial in Christianity. And uh, Lord, we pray that um, you'd give us clarity of thought and that we would better understand your word this morning by looking at uh, what your people have said throughout the centuries about this subject. Uh, so we pray that you bless our time together now. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen. All right, well, we are this morning continuing our series on the sacraments. And you'll remember that last week we'd begun to look at the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. All right, so we, uh, we're starting off our treatment of the Lord's Supper by spending two weeks talking about the history of the doctrine. Right? So we're looking at what uh, other Christian traditions have said about the Lord's Supper. And last week, we were looking at Roman Catholics on this doctrine, and then we also looked at Lutherans on this doctrine. And so today, what we're going to do in our second week on the history is we're going to look at uh, two views of the Lord's Supper— the first one is what I'm calling the memorialist view. We'll talk about what that is in just a second. And then the second view we'll look at is the reformed view, which is our view. Right? And so naturally, because that one's our view, we're going to spend most of our time this morning talking about the reform view and just kind of uh, being introduced to it very briefly. Okay. So two things we're doing today. One, looking at the memorialist view of the Lord's Supper. Secondly, we're looking at the reformed view. So basically what we're doing is we're not, we're not doing a full comprehensive treatment of either of these views, but like last week, we're hitting the high points, just hitting the, the major distinctives and uh, the, the important pieces of information. Okay. All right, so let's talk a little bit about the memorialist view. Uh, just to set the context for you here, this view called the memorial view of the supper is probably the dominant view in the church today, okay? The memorial view is the dominant view in the church today. This is the view that you're going to find if you, you know, you wander into some non-denominational Baptist Bible church or something, or if you're in some kind of mega church, or, you know, just generally speaking, this is the evangelical popular Christian view today is the memorial view, okay? And uh, now what is the memorial view? We're going to talk about that here. So um, you remember last week as we were looking at the Roman Catholic view and the Lutheran view, right? We said that those two views are sort of way over here on one extreme, right? And they're over here on this extreme because they have a very strong doctrine of the presence of Christ in the supper, right? That Jesus is physically present in the supper for Lutherans and Roman Catholics. And Roman Catholics go so far as to say that when they practice the Lord's Supper, they're actually, in a certain sense, sacrificing Christ again and again in the Mass, right? So the Roman Catholics and the Lutherans are over here on this one side of the extreme. They're not identical views, but they're way over here, right? And so now the memorial view of the Supper is way over here on the other extreme, okay? For the memorial view which is the dominant popular view today, uh, this Lord's Supper is what they will say is it is only a sign. Only a sign. The Lord's Supper for the memorialist is not 
a means of grace. The Holy Spirit is not working specially in the supper. There is no presence of Christ in the supper. He's not there physically or spiritually. And what they'll say is when, when they turn to the Gospels, right, and Jesus is instituting the Lord's Supper, and he, he's before his disciples on the night before he was, or the night that he was betrayed, right, and he, he hands out the bread and he hands out the wine. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you, right? This cup is the New Testament in my blood, right? You remember this in the Gospels, right? Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper. And what the memorialist will say is when Jesus says, this is my body, this is my blood, Jesus is purely speaking figuratively there. It's purely just symbols. Jesus is saying, the bread represents my body, the blood, or sorry, the, uh, the wine represents my blood. Right? So it's purely a sign. That's very different than Lutherans and Roman Catholics, right? Because for them, when they look at Jesus' words there, they say, when Jesus said, this is my body, he was not speaking symbolically. He was saying, literally, this bread turns into my body according to the Catholics, right? So you can see there's very opposite views here. On the one hand, the Catholics are like, the bread turns into Jesus' body. Over here, the memorial view is that the bread is only a sign, okay? Now, because the supper for the memorialists is only a sign of Jesus' body and blood, therefore the purpose of the supper is purely to remember the death of Christ. That's all it is. It's a, it's a memorial is what it is. That's why it's called the memorialist view. All we're doing is we are remembering what Jesus did. All right? And so for them then, the supper is not a spiritual event where we commune with Christ or where we partake of Christ, but rather the supper is purely an intellectual event. All we're doing is recalling the facts of what Jesus did. And we're remembering them as a memorial. Okay? Does that make sense? That's the view over here, the memorial view. That is the dominant view today. Okay? That's what most people, if they come to the Lord's Supper, unless they're Roman Catholic or something, the majority of people who come to the Lord's Supper are going to say, yeah, we're remembering Christ's death, right? Do this in remembrance of me. And that's all that it is. Now, on the one hand, as we sort of make a transition here to the reform view, we can agree with a lot of what the memorialist is saying, right? Because obviously, the purpose, one of the purposes of the Lord's Supper, right, is to remember the death of Christ. It is a sign of what Jesus did, that his body was broken for us, that his blood was shed for us. So we do do the Lord's Supper in remembrance of Christ, just like he said. So the memorialist is you know, sort of half right, there. They, they get some, some of the gist of it. But you know, the Lutherans and the Roman Catholics also have some truth there that the memorialist doesn't. And the Lutherans and Roman Catholics understand that the supper is more than just a sign, that Christ is present, and there is a spiritual work happening in the supper. Now, what, what the Reformed are going to do in, in our doctrine of the supper is we're going to take the best of the memorialists and we're going to take the best of the Lutherans and Roman Catholics and what we're going to do is sort of have a middle ground between the two of them, okay? And so what I want to do now is talk a little bit about the reform view of the supper, okay? This is our view. This is the view of the Presbyterians. This is the view of the Westminster Confession. 
This is the view of all the Reformed churches, if they've understood the confessions properly. So we're going to talk now about the Reformed view. This is what I want you to think of it as it's something like a middle ground between the two extremes. Now, it's not a perfect middle ground, but it's sort of helpful to sort of, you know, place ourselves within the debate so we can understand where everybody's at. So the Reformed view. Uh, and the, the way that I want to talk about the Reformed view is I want to look at the Westminster Confession and its view of the Lord's Supper and what it presents, right? because I think that uh, this is the biblical view of the Supper. Uh, the, the Confession doesn't answer every question about the Supper. Right? There are still disagreements within Reformed theology about some of the aspects of the Lord's Supper. But nonetheless, the Confession outlines a very helpful guide to understanding it. And so that's what I'm going to, to present here, because um, as we begin now looking at the Supper in Scripture next week and going through Scripture passages that relate to it and then treating it theologically, we want to sort of understand where we're going with that. So we're going to look at the Confession here, because this is our view of the Supper. All right, so the Confession treats the Lord's Supper in chapter 29. And I want to read for you paragraph 1 of chapter 29 of the Confession. It's a a wonderful paragraph that introduces us to the doctrine. And here's what it says. Our Lord Jesus, in the night wherein he was betrayed, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood called the Lord's Supper to be observed in his church unto the end of the world for the perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice of himself and his death the sealing of all the benefits thereof unto true believers, their spiritual nourishment and growth in him, their further engagement in and to all duties which they owe unto him, and to be a bond and pledge of their communion with him and with each other as members of his mystical body. Now, as I read that whole paragraph and you're just sort of listening to it, you might have gotten lost in all of the the language and what's being said there. So I want to break that paragraph down and sort of go through the pieces of it here because it's really important what the confession is outlining here. Uh, Firstly, you'll notice that in that paragraph, the Reformed view states that the Lord's Supper is a perpetual remembrance of the sacrifice that Christ offered on the cross. So there we're right with the memorial view, right? Of obviously the Lord's Supper is a remembrance of the sacrifice of Christ. He says, do this in remembrance of me. So the confession there is explaining that the Lord's Supper is a sign. It's a sign pointing to what Christ did for us. Okay, so we got that. That makes sense. But that's not all the confession says that the supper is. It's not just a remembrance of what Christ has done in the past. Secondly, the confession says that the supper is a sealing of the benefits of Christ. A sealing. So there we get the same language, right, that we've been talking about with respect to baptism. You remember, we talked about baptism as being a sign and a seal. The sign in the sense that it signifies spiritual realities. And for baptism, it's, you know, the washing away of sin and of regeneration and so on. And then seal in the sense that there is a real spiritual work happening in the sacrament. A spiritual work accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And at least for baptism, you'll remember, we talked about how in baptism, the sealing is the work of the Holy Spirit, sealing the promises 
of God and the gospel on the hearts of believers. So there is a real spiritual work by the spirit of God working on our minds and our hearts and our consciences, the promises of God offered in the gospel. Okay? So in that sense, baptism strengthens faith. And so what the, the confession here is saying about the Lord's Supper is largely the same idea. That in the Lord's Supper, it's not just a sign of remembering things that Christ did in the past, but rather that even when we partake of the Supper, the Holy Spirit is working to seal the promises of God in the gospel on the hearts of the believer when they partake of the supper. So there is, according to the reform view, a real spiritual work happening in the supper. It's not an intellectual event, purely. We're not just remembering facts. Our faith is being strengthened because the teachings of the gospel are being firmly pressed upon our consciences by the spirit of God in the sacrament, right? So that's the second thing that happens. And within the second thing, the sealing. So the Lord's Supper is a sign, right? And it's a seal. Within this aspect of sealing, there's two things the confession lists. Firstly, that the Lord's Supper through the Spirit is sealing our spiritual nourishment and growth in Christ. So there's the aspect of strengthening our faith, right? Just as we are eating the bread and drinking the wine, so we are eating and drinking of the benefits that Christ gives us. It's a beautiful picture, actually. As we physically need to eat food, so we spiritually need to feed on Christ. Now, not literally, of course, but spiritually we feed on Christ. He is our spiritual nourishment. And that's what the supper is signifying and sealing for us. So we have spiritual nourishment and growth in him. And then the second aspect of the sealing is that we are further engaged or further motivated in the duties which we owe to Christ. And so what the confession is doing there is they're saying not only is our faith strengthened by the work of the Spirit in the supper, but also because our faith is being strengthened, our faith is going to produce fruit. And what is the fruit of faith? Obedience to Christ. And so for the divines, the Lord's Supper actually has a profound practical benefit. Not only does it strengthen our faith, but the Supper is also strengthening our obedience to Christ. Because that's what happens when we, as our faith grows, as it gets stronger, is we are more conformed, our minds are more conformed to the pursuit of holiness as we pursue being united to Christ, right? So as we partake of the supper, that grace of the Holy Spirit is working to sanctify us, to make us more like Christ, to strengthen our faith, and therefore we live in stronger obedience to him. So there's, there's a profound practical aspect to the supper as well. And by the way, this doesn't just apply to the supper, right? You could say this about the word of God too. The more we read scripture and the more we respond to scripture in faith, right, the more our wills are going to be changed so that we will want to pursue Christ and we will want to pursue holiness and we will want to delight in the law of God more and more. Because before conversion, before we become saved, right, the law is something that kills us. It's something that shows us our sin constantly and something that is always breaking us and driving us to Christ. And then once we come to Christ, 
we find that the scriptures teach that our relationship to the law is different. It's no longer condemning us, but rather our relationship to the law has now changed to being a rule of life. And so we pursue what David pursued, that we might delight in the law of God and meditate on it day and night. And so the word of God is working in us to accomplish that, and so are the sacraments. And the divines are bringing that out here. Okay? So it's not just about strengthening faith, but it strengthens our Christian walk as well, feeding on Christ in that way. All right, so the supper is a sign. It's a seal. And then the third thing the divines list about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper is that it is a bond and pledge of our communion with Christ and with each other. And what the divines are bringing out here is that when we partake of the sacraments, we are distinguishing ourselves from the pagan world. We talked about this a little bit with baptism too, right? Baptism, when, when we bring a child forth for baptism or when an adult comes and becomes baptized, right? That is their declaration of being part of the visible church and of their declaring to follow Christ. Well, this Lord's Supper is in a similar fashion. It's distinguishing us from the world. We're declaring we are professing believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not going to be like the world. We are part of Christ's church. And so the divines are bringing that out here. That it's a, it's a public statement, if you will, in a certain sense, of our communion with Christ, our communion with each other, and the fact that we are members of his mystical body, they put it. Okay? All right, so that is the basic opening statements about the doctrine of the Lord's Supper from the confession. But the confession's not done, right? That's just the first paragraph. The confession continues and goes on to clarify certain aspects of the supper. And so these are some of the high points in our doctrine of the Lord's Supper that I want to highlight from the confession here. Firstly, the confession, right? they deny that Jesus is sacrificed again in the supper. Very important. What are they doing there? They're, they're speaking contrary to the Roman Catholics. Right? You remember, Catholics say Christ is sacrificed again in the supper. The divines say no. Not happening. Christ died once for all, right? So no sacrifice happening in the Lord's Supper. Uh, the divines also say that faith is required to receive the benefits of the supper. Okay, I'll get to you in just a second, Robert. Faith is required, right? You'll remember that's just like what Luther said last week. Luther said faith is required to receive the benefits of the supper, which is the sealing, Right? And uh, the divines are saying, yes, that's absolutely right. When unbelievers come and partake of the supper, they don't receive the benefits. Now, unbelievers, when they partake, Paul says, they eat and drink condemnation upon themselves. So for them, for unbelievers, the Lord's Supper is a sign and seal of judgment. But for believers, it's not so. For believers, it's a sign and seal of the promises of God in the gospel. Okay, so faith is required. That's very important. Robert, do you have a comment or question? Uh, comment, it may be that some people are not aware of what you mean when you refer to the divines. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Actually, I had someone ask me that a few weeks ago, so that's probably a good question. Yeah, Robert's asking uh, for me to explain about what I mean when I say the divines. Uh, the divines, when I speak of them, we're talking about the Westminster Assembly, right? the, the great theologians and pastors who came together 
to put the Westminster Confession together. Now, when we call them divines, we are not saying that they are gods, okay? Nor are we saying that they were under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit or anything like that, okay? When we say divines, we're just using the term uh, to refer to great men of old, okay? That's all it means. So you could refer to Martin Luther as a divine or to Calvin as a divine or to Augustine as a divine or something like that. Not talking about gods or anything weird, right? Just a a term of respect. So yeah, if any of you were wondering why I was saying that, that's a a fair question. Okay, Uh, so the confession says faith is required for the sacrament. It also says, now this is noteworthy, you'll want to take note of this, that believers truly partake of Christ's body and blood. Now, that's the language of the confession. Believers, when they partake of the Lord's Supper, they truly partake of the body and blood of Christ. Now, the question comes up then, well, hold on a second. That sounds a lot like Roman Catholics or Lutherans. What's going on there? What do you mean they they truly partake of the body and blood of Christ? Well, the confession goes on and clarifies what it means. It says that believers do not partake of the body and blood of Christ in a physical way. Not in a physical way. Christ's human nature is not present. We're not literally eating physically Jesus' body and blood. But nonetheless, the divines say we do truly partake of his body and blood, not physically, but spiritually. We partake of Christ's body and blood spiritually. Now, at that point, we can say we truly partake of his body and blood, even if it's spiritually. But the divines then stop at that point. And that's as far as they go with it. They're going to say, we really do, in the Lord's Supper, have a communion with the body and blood of Christ, because that's what Paul says. We're going to look at that passage in a few weeks. However... That communion is not physical. It is spiritual. And the lines of Reformed Orthodoxy stop right there at a spiritual presence of Christ. Now, there are uh, within Reformed theology a number of opinions about how exactly we partake of Christ spiritually. Calvin had one view. The Princetonians had one view. And so we might look at some of those views later on, or at least the one that I think we should uh, hold to, or the one that I think is right. But nonetheless, we just stop there and say, we can say we really do in the Lord's Supper have a communion. We do partake with the body and blood of Christ, the true body and blood of Christ, but not physically, only spiritually. And the reason why we need that, the reason why We don't just say we partake of Christ's divinity, but we also need to partake of his body and blood is because Jesus accomplished our salvation as true man. And because we are true human beings, we can only receive the benefits of Christ by union with not only his divinity, but also union with his humanity. And we'll look at this more carefully and in depth as to why the Reformed see this as as such an important aspect of the Lord's Supper when we get to our theological section, okay? So I'm excited for that. But just know, Lutherans and Roman Catholics say we partake of Christ physically. Memorialists say we don't partake of Christ at all. The Reformed say we partake of Christ spiritually. 
And we'll look at some more details regarding that later on, okay? All right, now, another thing really important in the Reformed view outlined in the Confession are the differences between baptism and the Lord's Supper and the similarities between baptism and the Lord's Supper. And actually, you'll find this in the larger catechism, all right? This is question 176 and 177. And what the catechism does is it outlines for us how are the Lord's Supper and baptism similar and how are they different? And so the, confe- or the catechism lists five ways that baptism and the Lord's Supper are similar. I'll just go through them here quick. We'll spend more time on the differences. First, they're similar in that God is the author. Right? God is the author of baptism and the supper. Secondly, They both give Christ and his benefits. So whether we're talking about the supper or baptism, they're giving Christ and his benefits. Third, they're both seals of the same covenant. So they're not uh, sealing some totally different things, but they are sealing promises in the same covenant. Fourth, they're to be administered by ministers of the gospel. That's important, right? Because... Uh, According to the scriptures, Christians in general can't just start administering sacraments in their backyard. Now, sacraments must be administered in the church by an ordained minister. And we'll look at that later on. And then the fifth uh, similarity between baptism and the supper is that they're to be continued in the church until Christ comes again. So we're going to continue practicing these Until Christ comes. Now, there are four differences that the catechism lists between baptism and the supper. And these differences are important and interesting. First, baptism is to be administered only one time. We're not about the business of rebaptizing people all the time. You baptize someone once. Lord's Supper, on the other hand, is an ongoing sacrament that we partake of continually. And and different churches have different practices about how often to take the Lord's Supper. Some do it every week. Others, like this church, do it uh, much more periodically. But nonetheless, we still practice it continually. It's not a one-time thing like baptism is. So that's the first difference. Second one is obvious. The elements are different. In baptism, we use water. In the Lord's Supper, we use bread and wine or plastic discs and grape juice. You can tell I don't have an opinion about that. Uh, Thirdly, we have the fact that baptism seals regeneration and engrafting into Christ, which we talked about when we were looking at baptism. But the Lord's Supper seals Christ crucified and spiritual nourishment for our growth in him. So baptism and the Lord's Supper are sealing the promises of the same covenant. But the emphasis in baptism is, and the emphasis in the Lord's Supper are different. Baptism, as it seals the promises, it is sealing the promises of regeneration, of baptism in the Spirit, right, of forgiveness of sins. The Lord's Supper is sealing promises of spiritual nourishment and of Christ's death on the cross. So they're intimately connected, but they're just, the emphasis is different. And that's what the divines are getting at there. The Lord's Supper, because it's an ongoing sacrament, is more about symbolizing the things that uh, we need over and over again, which is to come to the cross, which is to, to uh, receive that spiritual nourishment by feeding on Christ. So that's the third difference. And then the fourth one, and this is also important, especially today, is that 
We administer baptism to either infants or adults, depending on you know, the, the adult when he comes to faith in Christ, if he hasn't been baptized before, the infant, if it's a child of believing parents. So we give baptism to infants, but we only give the Lord's Supper to those who are able to examine themselves. And we do that because of what Paul says. Right? Paul says that when we come to the Lord's Supper, we need to be examining ourselves. We need to prepare ourselves. Infants can't do that. And so we do not give the supper to infants. And that's important because that's actually somewhat of a controversy today in some circles of Reformed theology. And uh, in fact, it's, it's so much of an important issue that if I were to believe in, baptize, or in uh, uh, giving the Lord's Supper to infants, I wouldn't be able to be a licensed preacher in this presbytery, okay? nor would I be able to be ordained here. Uh, so it's an important issue, and we'll look at that a little bit more later on. All right, and then the last thing in the reform view. We're definitely emphasizing the reform view today, right? And that's because that's the view we're going to be defending in this series. But the last point here in the reform view is this. The, uh, I love how uh, the Belgic Confession and the Heidelberg Catechism emphasize this point. Uh, those are also very important reform confessions. And they say this. They say, as surely as we receive that physical bread and wine, so our souls receive the body and blood of Christ. In other words, what they're saying is, as surely as we feed on the bread and wine in the Lord's Supper, so we receive the benefits of Christ. So we receive that sealing work of the Spirit. That's important. That's faith building. In fact, you could really sort of, if you wanted to just summarize what the Lord's Supper does, your children come and ask you, what does this mean? You shall tell them, the Lord's Supper is the work of the Spirit to build your faith. That's what it does. In fact, that's actually similar to what baptism does, and that's similar to what the Word of God itself does. It builds your faith. That's the purpose of the Supper. All right, that's the reform view of the Lord's Supper. We're going to stop there because we are out of time. Uh, Next week, we'll turn to Scripture, and we're going to look at a number of Scripture passages that relate to the Lord's Supper and uh, see how it corresponds with these different views. All right. Uh, Any quick questions before we wrap it up here? All right. Well, if not, let me close us in prayer. Oh, God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for um, the Lord's Supper, especially this morning. Lord, there are differing opinions out there, and we get that. Uh, We don't claim to have all knowledge, but Lord, we do seek our very best to understand these things. God, we pray you give us clarity of thought and uh, that we would learn to to move past the controversy and, and not let that cloud our appreciation for the Lord's Supper. Lord, as we partake of the Lord's Supper in the coming months, Lord, recall to our mind uh, these teachings we find in your word so that our faith might be strengthened. And Lord, we pray now that you would prepare us for worship this morning and to hear your word preached. We pray all these things in the holy and precious name of Jesus. Amen.